welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends. Uh, James Bond this week is busy uh, doing DMCA notices on Twitter. So I'm your stand-in host, James Page from MI6, and I'm delighted to be joined this week by Lisa Funnel, Ben Williams, and Bill Koenig. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Uh, sure. I'm Lisa Funnel. I'm an associate professor of women's and gender studies at the University of Oklahoma. I'm the author of The Geographies, Genders, and Geopolitics of James Bond with Klaus Dodds, as well as the editor of, um, for his eyes only, The Women of James Bond. Hi, I'm Ben Williams. Um, I write for MI6HQ.com and the magazine MI6 Confidential. And I'm Bill Koenig. I run a blog called The Spy Command, and I also have a webpage called The Bond 25 Timeline, which was a little busy as we record this from... (laughs) something that James mentioned at the top of the show. Right. So this week, I thought we'd do something a little bit different. Um, something we haven't done on the podcast yet is really talk about locations in the books and the films, and specifically uh, Bond, Bond in the United States, um, which has had kind of like waves of interest over the franchise history, especially in the films where it's kind of come and gone. Um, and sometimes where it's appeared, but it hasn't really been the States, right? A couple of times. Um, so who would like to jump in first when we discuss like the use of America and Bond as a location? Um, let me let me have a try at it. Um, I find it interesting that in two of the first four Fleming novels, there were a significant number of U.S. locations. In Live and Let Die, you had New York and you had uh, other places in America. You, you ended up down in Florida which was a considerably different world than it is now, which we may talk about later. But um, so there's a, a fair amount of uh, U.S. locations in that novel. And then, of course, Diamonds Are Forever, the fourth novel. Uh, you had, um, well, I think, what, New York and got into Las Vegas. And Las Vegas, of course, was a major location in the movie that didn't have a lot to do with the novel. But uh, but anyway, so, but yes, those you know, Two of the, those four novels did have a significant number of uh, U.S. Uh, locations. I think that's true. And um, I think um, I'm just going to touch on what uh, Lisa said prior to the recording, um, that, it, that, that it relates to the sort of the special relationship um, between the United States and, um, and the, the United Kingdom. Um, but I'll let Lisa sort of go more in, into that. I was going to basically say it's, it, it relates to really just Fleming's um, geography. And although he'd done quite a, a substantial bit of traveling, he had been to um, to Russia and he'd also, um, you know, been to uh, um some, I think, uh, I think he did a, a, a report on Arab, uh, oil interests or something like that so i think he he went out uh, that's right um there so he had done a bit of traveling to those sort of areas but the 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 vast majority of of his experience was america jamaica um and so i think it's it's telling that these stories that we find bond in are really reflections of of him writing what he knew and i think it's also about creating and positioning Bond and 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 um, MI6 in relation to a broader 
in a sense, the, the broader world of, of, of I, don't, I can only think of the word as espionage, but I'm sure that there's probably some other sort of political term that we can utilize. And the U.S. has been a major player. And so it is about creating and cultivating um, and representing that special relationship early on in the novel series, establishing that James Bond has connections in the U.S., um, that he meets Felix Leiter, befriends Felix Leiter, um, develops almost that sense of, of close brotherhood with Felix Leiter and that the two of them work together in the U.S. Um, in order to um, facilitate whatever the missions may be and, and creating the impression that Bond's missions do not only influence, say, the UK, but also the United States as well. And so that there is global significance. And oftentimes, I think when we when we think about film, the film industry, the way movie culture goes, you know, the way the US goes and the US market goes, the way the world goes. And I feel like it taps into that a little bit. So if, if you get the US on board, then it creates the space that this is a, a, a more acceptable, in a sense, project that Bond is undertaking. Also, Fleming dropped in references to real life people in his novels. Um, Diamonds Are Forever actually has a column by a sports writer named Jimmy Cannon, who is forgotten today, but was a fairly well-known sports writer in his time. And um, Thunderball uh, mentions Arthur Croc. Bond reads a column that Croc has written in the New York Times, and Bond imagines Croc is trying to show the U.S. government that he knows a lot of what's really going on, even if he doesn't know everything. Um, so there, there, I mean, there's some interesting references like that. And, of course, in The Man with the Golden Gun, he's carrying around a copy of Profiles and Courage by John F. Kennedy. So, Yeah, it does beg the question, um, how effective is Felix when Bond's mission finales are in three of the movies um goldfinger a view to a kill and you could argue diamonds are forever so bond does come to the, the rescue of the united states at least three times and the, the films do convey the impression that the special relationship between the u.s and the uk um it, it almost reframes it symbolically to show that the UK is the stronger and more active partner. Whereas what Felix Leiter tends to do is bring in the resources that Bond doesn't have. So they're tapping the resources of the US right. government, the personnel. Um, you think of something like Goldfinger bringing in the US military or the CIA. I can't remember who ends up um, showing up at, at Goldfinger's um, uh, area. Um, uh, Fort Knox, that's what I'm thinking about. I'm like, that's not gold. Goldfinger's estate, Fort Knox. It's the army. Yeah. The army. Uh, I, was just, I was just watching last night prepping for this podcast. Thank but, you. Uh, yeah, and, and also there's a fairly amusing one-liner at the uh, end is uh, Bond's walking to the plane and says, lunch at the White House. And, and I forget the next line, but uh, Bond says it was nothing. And then uh, Felix says, I know that, but he doesn't, meaning the president. But uh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think that I think it sort of ties in his relationship with with uh, Felix is, is really a kind of a, a, a microcosm of uh, the wider relationship that he has with with America in general. I think Lisa puts it well. It's um, Felix and America are simply there to provide resources to to bond to enable him to work his magic to do the things that um 
that they can't do for themselves. They need Bond and his. He might be a you know he might be the the small island, and Bond is is really a a, a, a sort of a stand-in for for the United Kingdom in, in this instance. It's it's sort of a it's sort of a suggestion saying. Yes, we may be a smaller country and perhaps maybe not as significant as we once were, um, but you still need us to do these things. Um, I think that's the inference there. Which we may see echoed again in Bond 20, sorry, No Time to Die, yeah. right? Yeah. With Felix. I was about to say, in the script of Thunderball, as originally written, um, Felix was going to go out and pick up uh, bonded domino, you know, like on a boat or something. Instead, he ended up getting use of that uh, that special plane that where where Bond put up that balloon, where the plane then came by and grabbed the mm. cable, reeled them in. So it's like um, originally Felix was supposed to pick him up in a boat. So, but instead, the budget was here, and the U.S. was more than willing. Yeah, and the U.S. was more than willing to provide all these toys uh, for the Bond producers to use. Yeah, I mean, that comes down to the propaganda machine of the CIA editing the movie scripts back in the day, right, to basically use them as um, propaganda, as the power of the U.S. military. And without Felix, without Felix there in these films asking Bond for help or relying on Bond's help or, in a sense, stepping aside and letting Bond lead – American um, resources and and personnel. Sometimes I wonder why is Bond even there? Why is Bond interfering? And most often in the U.S., Bond is engaged right. in missions that deal with drugs, um, and they don't necessarily paint the U.S. in a positive light. They present the impression that um, the drug war uh, that's going on is is harmful to the U.S. And it takes somebody like James Bond to step in and clean up this this mess and that drug use and abuse is it's framed in the bond series as being more of an american phenomenon and why would you have a secret agent from the uk stepping in to deal with this this broader issue or to be engaged in this and so felix Leiter tends to almost be um a mediator allowing or ushering bond in um to these places into these spaces legitimizing um his path by deferring to him even yep. if he's just an observer, there's there's also this this um, idea that the United States is this sort of impregnable impregnable fortress uh, because of its military might, um, and Russia is um, kind of having to uh, wage a more insidious war with drugs, inserting drugs into the country, sort of getting through the uh, through the the gates, so to speak. Um, and and defeating it from within mm -hmm. um, because it because it can't match its military might it can't stage an invasion so the idea is to cripple it kind of socially and economically um, but you're right Lisa it's uh, it's never it's never an American it's an American problem but for um, for Bond to solve so it's an interesting one. Of course, they flip that on the head in A View to a Kill, where um, Zorin's a ex-KGB agent, and his actions are going too far as far as the Russians are concerned, mm. right? And they try and put a stop to it. That's kind of the tipping point um, in 85, right? And it wasn't too long before after that that the war came down. So it's kind of a uh, And you, and you, a cool and you echo that a tensions. little bit with Oromov's – not Oromov. Uh, oh, oh, God, General – the the general in um, um, Octopussy, God, Burkhoff plays. Um, anyway, 
Um, his, Orlov, his, General Orlov. Or, Orlov. Yeah, it is Orlov. Sorry. Um, his, um, his, his plans are going too far. You know, this, this grand invasion. Um, it's almost like they're trying to, at that point, uh, present the Russians as um, not willing to kind of um, engage in anything overt. Um, or, or, or that detrimental to the United States or Europe. But they also show the U.S. as being incapable of defending itself because it's Bond who steps in at the end of Octopussy to protect, isn't it an American base? Air base. And he's protecting uh, Silicon Valley from being flooded. Bond seems to be presented as a protector of the U.S. And maybe that's one of the reasons why sometimes students in my gender and James Bond class mistake him for being an American hero. Because there are a lot of heroes who are presented in Hollywood films who have different accents, but who still represent the U.S. And so I think the fact that he's so invested in maintaining like the geopolitical security of the United States um, gives us that impression. That's actually a really interesting trivia point that Bond in Octopussy actually breaks into American sovereign territory. Yeah. Um, it being the airbase. So, yeah. So, even though he's in the middle of Germany, he's actually the US. And, and um, he's wearing a red shirt. So, you know. <laughs> and, and he can't get any of the Americans to listen to him. <laughs> right. He's trying to tell them and they won't listen to him. He's, so, he finally can't do it himself. asked on a game show to name some US locations using Bond films um, so let's run down the popular ones shall we and see how close to reality they were or were not um, top of the list obviously Goldfinger earliest film where Bond visits the states Kentucky or not well, as the case may be I was uh, re-watching part of the movie last night and taking notes so um, well, first of all, some of the real Fort Knox does appear in the film. Um, basically, the scenes where the soldiers play dead. I was just re-watching the, um, um, you know, just before we started recording, I was re-watching the uh, documentary that's on the home video. And that was like apparently one of the last things filmed. And so they basically offered all those soldiers $10 and a, and a beer. <laughs> it's like... Blow the horn once, you do this, and blow the horn twice, you fall dead. And um, so that's that is at the real Fort Knox because there's all those barracks. There's no way they would have built all those barracks for as fleetingly. Uh, you know, you don't see it that much. There's no way they had the budget to make <laughs> you know that much of a fort. Um, yeah. What I was going to say was though the geography as presented in the movie is kind of amusing and it's not very close to real life in that. Again, I took the notes. So at roughly the one hour mark, uh, Felix calls M and says they picked up Bonds Homer and he's uh, just landed in Baltimore and their final destination is Bluegrass Field, Kentucky. Well, that was the actual name of the airport at that time in Lexington, Kentucky, which makes sense because that's horse farm country. So if uh, Goldfinger had a horse farm. It would make sense. He would be near Lexington. 
The problem is Lexington is about 80 miles east of Louisville, Kentucky, and Fort Knox is about 40 miles southwest of Louisville. So it's not like it was very conveniently located to go ahead to do an operation <laughs> at Fort Knox. So when it's a dawn raid at Fort Knox, those trucks must have left at about 2 a.m. to be able to go. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> get over there. God, even, can we do this somewhere closer? God damn it. Can I get up at fucking two o'clock? The gas mask. Oh, I left my gas mask back at the stud. And and even those single and, and even those single engine planes of pussy galore's uh flying surf. You know, I mean they're gonna refuel. <laughs> so, okay, let's turn around turn around, go to refuel. Oh um, man. I love it. Yeah. Now there is a shot of a town. It's it, the it's a real town um, because they sent a very small unit to Kentucky. So it's so the way it plays out in the movie is, um, you know, you know, you know, it's in the UK because Connery's in the scene. So like Connery's in the truck and the trucks pull out. So like that's in the UK, and then the trucks are going in their convoy, and like that's Kentucky. Um, it's a town called Muldrow. You can see a sign on the side of some business to that effect. Um, and then they eventually get to Fort Knox. And of course, that's <laughs> we're back in the UK now. So, I mean, that's how it uh, did. And also, some of the shoot doubled for Kentucky. Um, so, like when Vaughn plants the Homer on Mr. Solo, and then he, he rides off with Odd Job. Those scenes of the car driving, that's in Miami. And I'll be honest, I did not notice this until last night when I was re-watching it. You can see palm trees in the background. It's very quick. And, you know, it's like I, I would have missed it if I wasn't looking for something like that. So, so like that scene. And also remember, Cease Linder was like the only actor, um, main actor, involved in the Florida shoot. So there's the CIA Thunderbird that's uh, tailing the Continental. So like Cease Linder is, you know, in the passenger seat, he's like leaning out, you know, he's leaning out the window constantly to establish, you know, it's Felix. And uh, but you can't see the driver. But then you cut to Felix and his, co you know, his fellow agent inside. Of course, that's in the studio because you got the rear projection. So... Um, yeah, so like C. Slinders, you know, was the only guy there, you know, who had speaking lines. And um, so like he's, you know, that that was his main purpose for that, uh, that part of the tie, shoot. To tie it all together, to, to allow yeah. it to be a kind of a, a thread that ran through it. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And we said just before we started recording that, um, well, I, I said that it's a, it's a fairly seamless transition. You don't really notice these, uh, these radical location changes. And they right. did it very and, well. And like I said, I wouldn't have noticed it if I wasn't like prepping for this podcast mm -hmm. last night. Because there's that scene where he says, Oh, you turned off to the right somewhere. And so you see the the Thunderbird stops and then turns right down that kind of gravel yep. road. And you make you know, and, and that's what I mean by C Slinter is like leaning out the, the car window. <laughs> You know, we know that you know it ties into the scene we just saw where the two agents were inside the car. Uh, and I, I wonder also whether you, you know the the UK audience or, or the world audience, sort of in general, would have had that good a knowledge of kind of American geography anyway. To to even if they had seen 
the palm trees in the background would it would it have um would it have immediately jarred with them and would they have said oh that's not right no nope. I, I suspect a lot of americans wouldn't have <laughs> no nope. i was saying um at the beginning of uh, the show before uh, before we started recording just uh, just a little anecdote about um where the um goldfinger stud actually was built um in pinewood um and obviously, Pinewood's sort of grown and expanded uh, a lot since uh, 1964. Um, and roughly speaking, where um, Fort Knox was built was just beyond where the 007 stage, soundstage currently stands. Um, so it was roughly there. Um, uh, and obviously, subsequently taken down, as, as was um, the... Uh, Goldfinger stub, which was slightly off to what would be, I guess, if you were if, if you were looking at the the whole grounds from the from the maze, um, it would be slightly to the left um, at what is now uh, S stage. Um, so it's interesting to sort of think about uh, those those two geographically on the lot. They were sort of facing one another um, uh, at at the time. So. When you when you're watching that movie, you can think about Goldfinger Stud actually being just uh, just around the corner, just a little bit from uh, um, from Fort Knox. Well, and also just a footnote about the real life uh, Kentucky horse farm region of Kentucky. Um, a friend of mine, I haven't been in years, but he lives there. He's retired, but he lives there. And one time, many years ago, I was visiting him, and so I asked, "Well, why why?" are all the horse farms here to begin with? And he said, probably pretty much because the soil wasn't good for actually growing crops. It's it very rocky in soil, so, uh, but it's very scenic, so great, great for uh, raising horses. Yeah, there you go. Um, coming back to what we were saying about how a lot of locations have um, sort of vanished over, over time, and, and they, they certainly have, uh, I remember I was writing one of the, the first pieces that I, I, I wrote for uh, MI6 was uh, on uh, the literary 007's New York. And I did a lot of walking around New York and looking at um, where these locations were, the original House of Diamonds and where that would have been and tracing literally uh, Bond's footsteps. As you can do because Fleming's um, very descriptive about uh, how far he goes, what directions he takes, which turns he takes, which uh, which roads he's on. Um, so it's very easy to to, to literally follow uh, Bond's footsteps in that, and I and I did that. But it was quite sad to see, I suppose, in some senses, um, a lot of these buildings had gone. Um, and uh, at the time, I, I think um, when I went to to where uh, House of Diamonds is described as being. Um, it was, a, it was a literal hole in the ground. They were doing some some building. So so that's interesting. Um, and all, all the Harlem locations have changed radically as well um, over, the, over that period of time. Keeping the order intact mm. over the film series. I mean, Sorry. Kind of Back-reference the books. No, no, no. We'll come to Live and Let Die. Um, Diamonds is obviously the next big adventure that takes place, um, a big chunk of it in the US. Um and speaking of locations that have changed, obviously that was filmed in what we would now call old Las Vegas, mostly, um, uh, which is now Fremont, 
the Fremont Street experience um, if you go to Vegas because the strip as we know it now is completely new. Um, and that was a big chunk of Americana um, for worldwide audiences, I think. Um, and I'm not sure how Bondian Vegas is as a location personally. Um, if, if it is at all, it would probably be downtown rather than on the strip per se. Um, I know there is a, there is some place in downtown Las Vegas. It, it has radio ads here in the Detroit area. And it's, it's, I guess it's a sports bar, um, with a Detroit theme, but they talk about how the odds are better. And it's, you know, it's, it's a lot better going here than being on the strip. Um, I mean, the one time that I went to downtown as opposed to the strip, it did look older now, but that was a long time ago. So I have no idea what it's like now, but, uh, if any of that's left, it would be downtown rather than the strip, I would think. Yeah, just coming back to what James is saying, it didn't, it, it's never really struck me as a particularly Bondian location. Um, you know, uh, I, I think we, we tend to kind of feel that they're places that are, are difficult to, to, to get to, to experience by the, the general public, and they, they, they generally have a sense of sort of exoticism to them. And um, I wonder whether um, Las Vegas really... Uh, ticks those boxes uh to me to me it struck me like when john gardner took bond to disneyland in the continuation novel it was you're just going to somewhere that a lot of people have experienced as a tourist already and it's not really escapism yeah i think that's, i think that's it. so there's something to be said though about the gambling aspect of it i mean james bond is somebody who frequents more high-end casinos casino games um, and Las Vegas at the time had the reputation of being sort of a gambling central, a central place, a central hub, albeit a lot more, say, commercialized um, and even more so now today than it was, say, in the 1970s. So for me, it doesn't seem to be that much right. of a stretch that Bond would be able to then step into this gambling sort of capital of the world and operate in that space competently. Um, and, and also showcase that it's not just about the casinos, but going into, you know, the desert areas around it as well. So I, I don't actually see it as being that far of a stretch. It's more commercialized, but to me, it's still in line with his, his reputation um, as, as a master sort of cards player. The one passage in the novel that always uh, stayed with me was he was described, Fleming was describing this older woman playing the slots and she wore a glove on her yeah. slot hand. The reason she did it was to like, you know, not get blisters because she was like playing the slot machine all day. Um, I, Fleming, Fleming's description is more artistic than I just gave, but it, uh, I, I just remember that, uh, that passage is, is pretty interesting. I got the impression Fleming didn't necessarily approve of Las Vegas. He made a number of mistakes um, in his descriptions of it too, um, which were pulled up on later um, by other people. It's interesting you should say that, Bill. I think there's there's quite a lot of um, veiled, disparaging kind of uh, viewpoints uh, that, that are laid out in in the Bond books, and I think it's sort of sort of grudgingly complimentary, yet at the same time slightly um, tongue in cheek and and not that complimentary i guess in in the long long run um it's it's almost that it, as if fleming kind of begrudgingly likes that they're that they've managed to be so successful but um 
finds it slightly distasteful somehow. Do you feel as though the films also provide a negative perspective of the U.S. with Bond going in there? Because we don't really get too many scenes of Bond in the U.K. until we get the later films. Bond's always sort of um, either he's in the office of Universal Exports or he's somewhere else around the world. I, I don't necessarily have a sense that there is an overall positive um, uh, impression given to us about the U.S. or about necessarily certain groups of Americans. Um, I'm thinking of Sheriff Pepper, for instance. Um, and so I'm just wondering your thoughts. Like, do you think that the negatives, the, the novels are more negative and disparaging? Do you think that that's something that is carried over into the films? And then how does that in turn reflect this perception of the special relationship? Like, is the U.S. not just safe through Felix Leiter, not being able to match Bond, say, in terms of, say, his his um, physical engagement in the space of action, but also the U.S. itself? Is it really being sort of pushed down a peg, maybe with the idea of elevating the U.K. at the same time? Uh, that's that's a... Um... That's a very interesting question, and I and I think it's um, I think you're absolutely right. I, I I think it although America is always sort of displayed as being um, certainly the more powerful in terms of financial um, capabilities and um, assets, um, they the American counterparts, um, whether it's um, you know, Sheriff Pepper or, or um, someone like uh, Felix Leiter, they're always they're always sort of shown to be um, less capable, inferior, um, even backward thinking compared to Bond. And it does push the states down and elevate the, the United Kingdom. I think that's absolutely true. In, diamond, in Diamonds Aren't Forever, when they, like, uh, rescue Willard White, first thing Willard White says, FBI? CIA. And then Bond says, no, British Secret Service. And here's all these CIA guys around saying, hell no, Bond, I'm with the CIA. You don't talk for me. But of course, no one says that. They all defer to Bond because, well, Sean Connery's the star of the movie. But um, I mean, that's just that's just in just a little example of, of what you're talking about, where kind of like we lift up Bond and and the CIA guys are all just defer to him. I'll give you a counter example because it couldn't be a podcast without mentioning Die Another Day. Um, <laughs> Falco. Right. Falco, M's opposite number Falco at the NSA. It's interesting that they use the NSA in that film. Um, has her on the back foot and MI6 on the back foot for most of the film. And Jinx is presented as Bond's equal and is at a, you know, she's shown to be that during the film with one, you know, mostly through the film, she's totally competent and Bond's opposite number. So I'd say that's maybe where the balance shifts um, in the series. But I think that's true, but it's done in, in a way that um, you really dislike Falco because of it. Uh, almost not. Because yeah. Of, yeah. I mean, it, he's certainly pres- and he's mean to Ju- he's mean he's mean to Judy. Yeah, but it took forty years to get to that point, though. And then by the time it, you get to Quantum of Solace, you you really have the the CIA played out as um, as if not the bad guys, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bumbling idiots, really, and uh, but certainly people who are very happy to get in bed with the bad guys. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's. It's, it's an they're interesting dumb take. And they're mean. 
<laughs> yeah, don't at me. Um, but I certainly, certainly, I think that the quantum solace is the is the pinnacle of uh, treating um, the American counterparts um, as poorly as they as they could possibly present them. But I think there's also something to be said to go f- like to take us a little further back into the film series. Um, it, it matters also the gender of Bond's counterpart on screen. So when Felix Leiter is present, he represents the U.S., the U.S. interests. Um, but he's presented as being, in a sense, a mirror to Bond. You know, they're they're the same. They kind of look the same. They're all the same identities and so forth. But when a woman steps in and there's a lot of American um, women who serve as Bond girls. So either the characters are American or the characters are played by American actors. When they are agents, Felix Leiter is not in those films. Um, and the special relationship, the way that it gets coded when gender is a factor and when Bond goes out and, um, not only performs in a superior way, but there's sort of a, a sense of domestication when it comes to the woman who is an agent who's supposed to be Bond's equal, but is somehow put down by him and then kind of domesticated by him and then in need of him and his service and his help. There's something to be said about that type of dynamic that also works to bolster the UK, in some ways feminize the US and put it down. And so by the time you get to someone like Jinx, who in many ways is presented as his equal, but there's also some issues in terms of her representation when race becomes intersected. There's a hypersexuality to her um, that's not necessarily granted to other women. Um, And so it's an interesting dynamic by the time we get to that point, but it has been carved out through many years of having uh, an established hierarchy or hierarchical relationship between the UK over the US and how gender factors into that. Talking about with with Felix, I think I think the Jack Lord iteration of Felix is sort of like the truest form of that. It's like you know they 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 look very similar. They look they both look capable, and then starting with Goldfinger, Felix becomes more of Bond's assistant. Um, it's it's more true in some films than others. You know, when we get to Live and Let Die, Felix's main role seems to be to clean up Bond's mess messes. Um, Half half the film uh, in, of Moonraker has uh, Doctor Golly Golly Hoodhead, uh, Holly Goodhead, um, um, presented as um, a, a different kind of ally. Um, you know, she's uh, she's presented as the as the the, the doctor at um, Drax Industries, the the the, the, um, the, the physicist, and then. There's a there's a point where Bond discovers that she's a CIA agent, and the relationship changes, and how she is perceived changes. So I wonder, Lisa, how do you how do you feel that 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 um, comes across in, in in the film? I think that when you name a character Doctor Holly Goodhead, I don't think we from the outset are going to take her as seriously as a character named James Bond. Um, I think that that automatically cuts her down a little bit. She's presented as being someone who has been able to go undercover as a physicist, as an astronaut, the amount of training, the amount of knowledge to be able to pull that off. 
um, versus Gala Brand, who was a police officer who functioned more as in a secretarial role in um, Moonraker's uh, novel version. That required a little less, say, educational background versus, you know, Holly, who has to be capable and competent to be able to do it. Um, and I feel as though there was the mockery of, of, of Holly Goodhead that happened with her cosmetic case. We do have a gendering of gadgets where, you know, male spies get like really awesome watches and stuff. And oftentimes it's cosmetic products that are associated with um, female spies. And I get the reason why. I just think the coding is problematic. Um, and he basically like, calls her out like, I know what this is. I know what that is. And then from that moment onwards, it's downhill where she's one step behind him to the point that he's able to pilot a spaceship. You know, he's able to do stuff that she had to be trained to do and that he's able to sort of step in and he just seems to know. And so you, you have there almost like Bond is showcasing that he representing the UK has the same amount of knowledge when it comes to space travel, when it comes to, you know, NASA, it's comparable to NASA, NASA astronauts and all the resources that they can utilize to create these agents who can infiltrate these, these types of spaces and that he himself intuitively just knows what he's doing. And so I think the whole film is a taking yeah. down of her as a way to bring him up and to showcase maybe he might not have these quote unquote institutional knowledge, but he has, you know, the special touch, the instinct, and he has the ability to make it work for him. Uh, excuse me. I mean, I mean, for example, you're talking specifically with Bond and Holly. Yeah. I mean, like, for example, the way he, he comes across that purse, knows it's a radio, mm -hmm. flicks thing or does something and this ridiculously long antenna comes out of the purse. Um, and what was it? Oh, it was also a perfume thing. It was really a flamethrower, um, that kind of stuff. Men also in the, in also usually get like the cool looking guns while the women agents carry these little Derringer size <laughs> things that can fit in a purse, and there's a, which don't, there's a really great parody of that in the Melissa McCarthy film spy where she goes and she's supposed to be going right. undercover and she's looking at all these amazing gadgets. And this is basically me. Anytime I watch a Bond film, I'm like the cool cars over here and there's watches and flamethrowers and rocket packs and all the stuff like, that the dudes get to play with. And she's excited for this moment. And she gets like hemorrhoid cream and like laxatives and all this stuff. <laughs> That's incredibly embarrassing. And she's like, why do I have this sort of stuff? And all the cool stuff goes to the men and it's, reflective of the coding of these gadgets where the guys always get the awesome stuff and the women get a purse like you said with the antenna that's so ridiculously long and exaggerated <laughs> if you can have like a radio or like a, a some sort of transmitter in your watch you can manage to make a purse quality <laughs> you know what i mean and it's almost like a mockery through yeah. these gadgets that you know that that somehow she and through her the cia are just incapable and incompetent and it's just it's so frustrating to see yeah it's 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 interesting i think particularly with her as a as a as a cipher for um for the relationship with the united states and also playing a cipher for um the, the word the, the women are uh, presented in in the films you know it's um it's interesting she's got this kind of dual she's she's shouldering a dual kind of uh i don't want to say responsibility but like um 
you know she's she's representing both of those things and in, and in doing so her character is um um probably one of the uh the most hard done by in the series i would say um simply because she's um she's 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 not only having to be the um the the, the brunt of kind of uh in england versus america but uh, also kind of um men versus women it's uh it's a it's an interesting one in the uh, first draft script of moonraker um they had his and her mini jets the the same kind of mini jet that would eventually show up in octopussy and so they're going to go up you know trying to investigate up in the amazon and so bond has this sort of condescending line oh sure you can handle this plane and then she like turns the plane upside down and it's flying next to Bonds. Yeah, I think I can handle it. Um, obviously, we didn't get to see that because those jets were a, a casualty of uh, budget cutting. But uh, so, so, so that thought, at least, was in the scripting process. It just fell by the wayside uh, as, the, as the script development occurred. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. I, I think in terms of... Uh, a, you know, not not to, to to get too far away from from the the, the topic of the, the show, but uh, Moonraker is um, a very interesting film in terms of uh, how gender is uh, is is presented. And, and you know, you look at uh, Corinne Dufour um, and her, you know, this helicopter pilot who is, you know, you've got to be pretty smart to be a helicopter pilot, <laughs> um, and she's, uh, you know, she's. She's basically, I mean, I know she, her, her role is as the sacrificial lamb, but it's, uh, you know, she's, she basically becomes um, a, a childlike sort of innocent, but, I, I, you know, I don't want to say a moron, but, like, you know, there are points where you're just like, why is she doing that? Um, and it's, and it's, it's pretty tragic. And it's interesting because in the Bond franchise, this is something that I've written about, there's a difference when it comes to women and their relationship to aircraft. So you have the personal assistant sort of helicopter pilots who tend to be overtly sexualized in their depictions. They're there to be sort of an assistant, um, a face to be alongside the male villain, but they are incredibly disposable. Um, and so in, in this particular case that you're talking about, she is presented in that white gown running through the forest. It looks like a horror movie as she sort of gets attacked. Mm. And then you have the actual pilots and you have a, a string of Bond girls who are pilots. So Holly Goodhead would be an example. Pam Bouvier um, is, is another example. Pussy Galore Another example, most often these women are American characters. They're capable. They are competent. Um, they're shown to have an area of expertise, and that's awesome. But by being an expert um, in the aircraft, you're actually oftentimes physically separated from the physical action that takes place on the ground. So Pam Bouvier is giving air support while James Bond is doing the hard work on the ground, doing the fighting, um, doing all of the bodily intensive labor. And so it's an interesting partnership when you have someone being separated. And I think for me, and I always bring it back, the most extreme version of this um, is actually in the film, The Kingsman, 
where the female character is the actual true Kingsman, but then one of them has to go to space to do something to, it doesn't, I can't even remember the premise because I'm so angry about it. And so she's in space for the entire climax while, you know, the, the male hero gets to go in and do like crazy action. Like there's all this stuff going on and she's literally just in space. And so I think that's, She's tied to a balloon. Yeah, yeah. Like she's so physically dislocated, but she's the one who's the true Kingsman. And it always sort of gets me where I'm like, and that's the way that women are treated oftentimes in these partnerships where they do the things, whether it's signals intelligence or they're the scientist or something that keeps them separate and, and opposite from the actual physical space. And so Bond gets the credit and then, you know, they're sort of along for the ride. And it just, I don't know, it's frustrating. And in the... And in the case of Kingsman, the woman character then gets killed off in the, in oh, the sequel. in like the most ridiculous way. Like she doesn't even get to fight. Like at least give her an action sequence like Colin Firth got, um, where you get to like fight right. and it's and and you die heroically. Instead, she's sitting at a computer and her room explodes. Like there's uh, there's nothing there. Like oh, who wrote it? Come talk to me. Just give her some space to do something. And then, you know, let her die, at least in the space and in the craft that she's trained in. Yeah, you know, it'd be nice to have a... I hadn't actually seen the sequel and thanks oh, for spoiling. Um, <laughs> no, it's been out... Look, it's been out a while. If I haven't seen it by now, it's my fault. Um, that, well, that's but, my line because I, I always argue there's a uh, statute of limitations for spoilers. And I exactly. remember the exact year it came out, but I thought... Well, this is why I'm very interested to see what, what's going to happen with um, No Time to Die, uh, because, you know, we, we do have an opportunity here to have a woman of colour um, yes. In, in, in a in a role uh, which from from you know what we've established is that she's certainly a, a capable double O agent um, and are we gonna be able to, to have a situation where she has that agency has has that um, you know impact in in the narrative rather than being being put down and, and bond to show her how it's done I, I I'd like there to be an opportunity to, uh, as, as you say, have some equity in it. And maybe one way to start is to give Nomi a last name, maybe in some of the media. One of the biggest issues I have, and this is something that I have when it comes to writings on James Bond, and this is something I deal with with anybody who gives me um, uh, chapters for my anthologies, it's like in the writings of James Bond, we talk about the men in relation to their last name. So James Bond becomes Bond, Felix Leiter becomes Leiter and so forth. But when it comes to the women, they are almost exclusively in the, in the scholarship and critical works referred to by their first name um, as if they, they don't have their own last name. They don't have their identity. They're there to be free and signal, single so that they can take on somebody else's last name. It's really a... And when we talk about men by their last name and women just by their first name, it is actually a way to put down women. So it's like taking two professors and calling the male professor Dr. Smith and some someone referring to me just as being Lisa. I'd be like, wait a second, that's, mm. that's unequal. Like you wouldn't do that, you know, in certain settings. Yeah. And so when I think about just 
the stuff and I've Googled it, like who is Nomi? Um, and there is no last name uh, brought forth with it. Even just like the naming itself, it just, it's something that I'm very attentive to and it irks me where I'm like, I would love to be able to talk about Nomi by her last name if we're going to call James Bond by his last name. So even just the way we're marketing it already to me, I'm like, there's inequity here. Like, uh, yeah, it's just, it's a pet peeve that is just getting replicated through some of the media and and through the, the lack of information being released by the franchise. Well, I I, I, agree. I was going to say I agree with you, Lisa, but we haven't explicitly been told it is her first name, just to play devil's advocate. But we know, True, we, we, and we know it's 99.9% it is. But, yeah. You know, I agree with you. That is a um, really good point. And, and how difficult would this be, you know, to come up with a last name? It's, you know, it's one of those sort of situations. I mean, even if it's a, a placeholder or something, you know, you it's not it's not difficult to do that and when it's it's either smacks of 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 lazy writing or 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 an intentional uh um desire to just um give her a a kind of a a single singular name and i think that um i think you're right if it is that um intention um it does play into an inequity well we might be seeing um, a double header of things that make us mad and uh, no time to die then because we're going to have potentially um, Bond goes um, to help out Nomi because you know she can't handle it by herself yeah. and Felix the American brings him in because the Americans can't handle it by themselves mm. so he rides to the rescue of two potentially at the start of the film mm. and, 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 and they're both people of color yep so it's a triple header. Yeah. And I think like on the yeah. one hand, there's a lot of constructive potential with this film. I mean, you have the largest cast of, of racial minorities in core positions in both like when you think about like all the people who are just Bond's supportive team from Money Penny to Lighter to Nomi, that's a lot of racial diversity of Bond's core unit that has not really been there in the past. And this notion then that they all need Bond to step in, it's hard not to consider the way that race and gender are going to code the the deficits then that they have. It's it's hard to Mm. find a path forward where that's not going to be a factor. So I don't know if you're painting yourself into a corner with this, with this particular premise of the film that you might be implying, whether it's intentional or unintentional, um, lack of capacity in a way that you might not want to. Well, that's always going to be di- difficult with a, with a white male hero, isn't it? Uh-huh. Um, well, always gonna, yeah. I, I just kind of wonder what uh, F- uh, Felix's pitch t- to Bond's going to be. <laughs> yeah, Bond, I'm a, I'm a trained agent, and I've been working the last five years while you've been laying around in Jamaica, but uh, I need your help, if you don't mind. Um, I have a feeling that's not going to be the pitch, but, you know, I'm, I'm all out of peppers. <laughs> well, I, I would like to see. I would like to see it being the fact that he has been out of service for five years, and he is off maybe the intelligence radar. That might be the reason that he is perfectly suited to take up this role. I think that that would be a better way of doing it than saying nobody can do it as well as you can. We need your help. Um, yeah. It That's might, true. It would, it would be better if it was just like 
nobody knows who you are. You haven't been on the on the on the radar for a while. You're not on any any lists. Um, so you can this if if for instance the the bad guy you know has a a, a comprehensive list of of uh, agents who are active. Um, Bond would be somebody who would be perfect to kind of infiltrate in that regard. Which is why he had cover names in the past and operated that way, right? Mm. Um, but to your point about how do you make it not look bad for the minorities? Well, I, I think their angle is, well, they're not using them as villains anymore, right? Which could pull us all the way back to live and let die. Say live and let die. Um, and you know, at the time, that came under criticism, um, fairly unfairly, um, and pulling it all the way back to locations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the location work in and uh, in in the film, and also the commentary in the book, potentially. Well, it, it is problematic in today's age, and it was at the time. Um, that yeah. of all the films, that of all the films that use America as a location, has so many issues and negative connotations. From as you said, Lisa, in the beginning, it's like the drug problem is something that only Bond can solve, and then you've got the racial inequalities and how they use the minorities in that film, and then the, the choice of locations, um, the Deep South, and also Harlem in New York. I mean, this is—they're not shining the, the the best light on American society in that film and the book. No, putting it mildly. Um, I mean, Yafet Koto. Sorry, go ahead, uh, Bill. Well, I was just going to say, Tom Mankiewicz was on record as saying that, and I believe he said this in his commentary track on the home video release, that he was very cognizant. He did not want the black, they were going to be villains, but he did not want them to be the subject of ridicule, certainly not the main ones. And so that that was part of the reason for, you know, the creation of J.W. Pepper was to have a figure of ridicule who obviously, you know, is white and is a clod. And uh, the the except that he uh, Magwis probably did not foresee that Clifton James would do such a such a job. It was also it was also the reason why he wrote he wrote Solitaire as, as a black female character right? Um, until the studio changed it to white lady. And, he's, and, he, and I believe he said specifically he envisioned Diana Ross in the yeah. role. Um, but uh, that was deemed too, too radioactive an approach to take. So we then got Rosie Carver and then Mankiewicz also says on the same commentary track that he, he always felt bad about Rosie's demise I think he may even said that he apologized to her and he just, and when he regretted that, that track, he, he, you could tell he still regretted it. It was just something that he was just, I guess he had worked himself into a corner and, you know, that's what happened, but he, you know, he, he just didn't like the result, but he, he was stuck with it. And I think one of the consequences of not casting, say someone like Diana Ross in the role of solitaire is that the film really doubles down on, you know, 
a very potent theme that makes its way, particularly in American media. So it's being touched on in this film. And that has to do with um, miscegenation and specifically who has access to whose body. So on the one hand, you have the threat against the white woman from Kananga. Um, and it's the threat of the black man on the virginal white woman. Um, and that's something that's looked down upon and it's coded as being evil. And this is a huge trope in, in American culture. And then on the other hand, you have Bond sleeping with Rosie Carver and there is no um, judgment placed on Bond in a bad way um, for, for that. You sort of have through that the hypersexualization of the black woman, um, which is a stereotype in and of itself. And then you have Bond's somewhat predatory behavior um, to solitaire where he coerces her to having sex by playing with the deck, which is her religion and her religious views. And yet nothing is said about the way that he preys on solitaire. And so I think it's interesting that simply with the casting decision, it actually reinforces some really problematic um, mm. racial politics that are prominent um, in Hollywood at the time. And, and we could argue maybe still today um, that otherwise might not have been there to the same type and same degree um, had, had it been cast a different way. So in one way you're trying to stop something from happening through casting, but you're actually, you know, reinforcing something else through, through your casting choices. And, and also in, in terms of, um, the character of Solitaire being um, played the way that she is by Jane Seymour, yeah. um, being very naive. I mean, she is she's virginal, but does virginal translate to naive? Uh, that's a but she's she's childlike, and um, it's it's that kind of um, you know sexualization of 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 a of a of a child mind in a in a in a an adult body, I guess. Uh, which you know is again it's is, is a trope um, in in film, um, but I wonder whether if it if if, if someone like Diana Ross had been cast mm -hmm. in that role, whether they would have had to have written uh, Solitaire slightly differently because I, I I don't you know I I think in a sense um, Solitaire being played by Jane Seymour was was written in a in a very kind of tropey way. Um, and to to reinforce that trope, to reinforce that idea of um, uh, uh, you know Kananga's kind of uh, malevolence, um, and it might have been different if it had been uh, Diana Ross. Seems that way to me, anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but it but it is interesting that like a, a small casting choice. A, a decision like that can have such a big impact on it because, as, as you say, I think it, um, it it leans really heavily into into those ideas and um, makes the makes the film far more problematic than it than it needed to be. And and also with Yafat Koto's kind of dual character of um, um, you, you know uh, Mr. Big and, and Kananga and the and the strange reveal of, of a of a black man in blackface is a is a very odd um moment in cinema i think and i don't i i seem to remember he wasn't super comfortable with it no no he wasn't um 
also the locations they, they chose to use. <laughs> locations. To bring it back to this topic. I was trying to find a way to circle back um, to that too. I was like, oh, I just opened yeah. something and I can't come back from that right now. Well, well I, I, the use, I, the use, the use of Harlem makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, in terms of like his plan to flood the U.S. market, I mean, that's at the time that made sense to do yeah. to use Harlem. I mean, it's going through gentrification right now, um, but the reason they went to the south was because um, they wanted to. Yes, I mean, I think they even say this on the the making of documentaries. Like they engineered uh, uh, the locations of that film because they wanted to party in New Orleans. Whilst yeah, making the film. I, I think I think they'd seen the bios, and I'd, I think they were just like they they realized that they could utilize that um, that location very well. Uh, in terms of a, of a chase sequence, um, so there was there was that aspect of it. Yes, there was the party aspect of it. I'm going to New Orleans next week, um, actually. Um, Super. So, um, just as an aside. Be careful of standing on street corners and funerals. So. <laughs> I, I intend to. Um, and uh, can I, but, can I um, offer a tidbit? Uh, uh, some, something that happened to me when I went to New Orleans. So I please do. I did a swamp tour. Uh, which was super awesome, super cool. And they kept telling me as I was on the swamp tour that the, this location is where this scene in Live and Let Die was shot. And I have all these pictures of just swamp, like water, window, <laughs> trees. Like I just kept clicking because I'm like, oh my gosh, this is all James Bond. They could have been lying to me. Like there's nothing holding them to actually telling me the truth. Um but it is actually a source of tourism to be able to talk about the fact that James Bond did film in these particular spaces. And I think that's something to circle back to our conversation about location shooting and what it brings to the table versus, say, doing something on set is that oftentimes this then creates tourist locations, tourist, I don't say tourist traps, but tourist spaces where people can then come go and partake in those, those areas and those situations. And it was just sort of an interesting thing that I went through and you might consider doing that for your trip, but you're going to see a lot of swamp and you might not be able to be like, this is the exact spot because it's been, I don't know, 40 years, trees grow, things change. But I took about 50 pictures of like I've rando tr- I still haven't deleted them because I'm like somewhere in here there has to be a truthful picture, but um, <laughs> <laughs> that's just my fandom talking, not my logic. Was it the economy tour? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Probably. Um, no, I, I I don't know how much much swamp time I'm going to be able to squeeze in, but uh, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, you're gonna you're gonna make sure. You picked the wrong Paris to haul ass through, boy. <laughs> with your with your with your rental car, you're going to say that, aren't you? Yeah. That's, um, <laughs> in, interestingly, we we were talking before about the exoticism of of locations for Bond, and I think Harlem actually is an interesting location in the sense that it wasn't somewhere that people could easily visit or would feel comfortable going into um yeah, you'd feel like a cue ball right then <laughs> yeah uh great disguise uh white face in in harlem um but that's that's an interesting aspect as well you know that there there is this place that you could feasibly go to you know you could easily get to manhattan but you couldn't necessarily easily go into into harlem certainly in in the 70s um i believe even when they were filming there they uh, they needed to uh, pay a certain uh, juice to to be able to 
to shoot there and, and their time was uh, running out. Um, and that sort of circles back slightly to the, the, the literary um, Harlem. And uh, I was mentioning this to Lisa before we started recording, but um, it's one of the, it's what Fleming tries to come across as, as being very uh, hip and forward thinking. Um, and we've got that in, in Lighter's character being um, very into Dixieland jazz and it allows them as a sort of a passport into, into Harlem. And they're able to go in there based really on Felix's uh, jazz knowledge, um, which, is, which is, I guess, um, quite a nice thing. But it, it is slightly patronizing. And certainly when they... They get into some of the bars and they're listening to some of the patois and and the and, and the, the way people talk. Um, it's 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 a, it's an uncomfortable read, um, despite Fleming, I think, trying to come across as being progressive. Well, all the uh, drop G's and the verbs don't help. That's like no. that's that draws attention to itself and. Uh, not one of the best parts about the book. Um, no. It's so difficult to get through the dialogue. Like, it's a difficult yeah. read. Just, it, it just, even when I'm, I'm reading it, I in my head, like, as, you know, as you read, you hear the words that you're reading in your head. At least I do. I don't know if I'm, that's normal. But for me, even just reading, I'm like, this is just, this just, just doesn't feel right. Mm. Uh, just as a plug, for uh, MI6 Confidential magazine, um, in issue 50, um, I explore 007's uh, literary um, New York. Um, so uh, if you want to get that in the back issue, everybody, uh, go ahead and order that if it's still available. Oh, it's still available. Yeah, the interesting thing was when I was, when I was um, proofing that for the magazine, Ben, when you wrote it, was I think you had a line in there like, well, the Toys R Us building stands there now. Mm. like... No, it doesn't. Toys R Us is gone. <laughs> <laughs> so e- even, you know, in the last few years, the, yeah. the landmarks have changed somewhat. So going back, I mean, some of, some of the places are still there, right, that you read about, but a lot of things have changed I, in, the, I, the, in the city. The, the vast majority of things have changed, yeah. And even some of the things are still there, um, like talked about on a previous podcast, talked about Sardis, where they've taken down the the black on the windows you can now see out those windows like back when Fleming would have been there you wouldn't be able to look at them. yeah I think I mentioned that uh, Bond stays uh, I mean he stays in a, in a couple of hotels but I think he stays um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong people but at the Astor um, just off Times Square at one yeah. point and um, he would have had a view of a very big billboard. It said Bond in, in uh, 20, foot, 20 foot letters. Um, that, was, that was a fixture of uh, Times Square for some time. Um, and, and when uh, Fleming was writing that, that's, that's, what, uh, that's the view that uh, Bond himself would have had out of that particular window. So that's quite interesting. Um, but that's gone. Um, a lot of the Harlem locations have gone. Um, which is which is uh, you know some of some being replaced by you know there are um, memorial plaques and things, but it has uh, the landscape is, is is vastly changed uh, in New York. The, the you know the, the the street system is is 
pretty much the same. So you can find yourself into the in, in, in these locations and you know that you're in the right spot, uh, but the buildings themselves will have changed. Can I circle back to something you mentioned? Um, and it's just jogged a completely different train of thought. But when we were talking about representing the U.S. and places and spaces, and you mentioned this notion of exoticism about different places and as somebody who teaches American students, I always have read, for instance, Hollywood films as being different and other, right? It's not necessarily about me, but it's about people who are close to me. But I teach students who are um, inundated with a media system that represents itself. Um, so there are these self-representations mm. of, say, American identity, American places, and then these ideas are exported worldwide but oftentimes my students don't have the experience of being defined from the outside um, unless oftentimes you're a racial minority and so on and so forth. Um, and when you mentioned Sheriff Pepper in conjunction with this notion of exoticism, he always ends up having this negative response from the class because he's completely being stereotyped. They don't think it's very flattering um, and it kind of feels just a little bit off to them. Um, because this is, you know, a, an external viewpoint that is then being brought in. And I'm wondering, and I don't have an answer, what it, what the experience might be of seeing these places in these spaces as either being written through the lens of Fleming or presented through the lens of this film series where the U.S., where you're not used to, say, your own culture, your own place is being identified from the outside. And it'll be a different type of perspective. It could be a more exotic perspective. It could be an exaggerated perspective. Um, what that, that sensation must be like for American filmgoers watching these types of movies versus, say, British filmgoers who are used to the other experience of Hollywood or any other place, Hollywood stereotyping different nationalities, different places, different spaces, and so forth, and then having sort of flipping the script through the Bond films in its representation of the U.S. through its sort of uh, geographical spaces and its people who are representing the nation at large. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know what that experience feels like because I'm not American, um, so I definitely view it through a different lens. But I think there's something to be said about that notion of exoticism that certain audiences might not have that experience due to their cultural industry being the dominant one pretty much in the world. That's an interesting point. I think one of the things that uh, the Bond films tend to do is, is to, um, to look at uh, locations through an exotic lens and, and to stereotype, uh, you know, quite, quite strongly. I mean, you look at um, Octopussy um, and, you know, they cram in every every possible kind of unflattering uh, stereotype within about ten minutes, um, and yeah, I think that they and, do. And that's do, just the pre-title. That's just the pre-title sequence in Cuba. Yeah, but but you do also see that um, with um, w with the American locations, and it is viewed. America is viewed through through the lens of as you say either Fleming but particularly in the film series um, you know a, 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 what is essentially a, a, a cottage kind of film industry here um, which is very different to the the, the kind of the, the, the huge industry of Hollywood um, and it, it it's got sort of more in common with sort of the carry-on films and and 
and those kinds of films that are that are made in, in the United Kingdom, and therefore kind of yeah, it is it is a skewed view, um, a, a, an an exaggerated view, and an alien view, and it would be a bit strange, I think, um, say if you were a native of San Francisco watching a view to a kill because you would you would see it through this sort of a slightly warped lens mm -hmm. which is interesting considering you had an american writer work on 13 of the first 16 movies or whatever it was mm. um and then and you one american and then you know then you had mankwitz with three credits and worked on at least two others doing uncredited polishes so having you know some american creative personnel that attitude creeps in mm -hmm. which is always emphasize that they're co-productions i mean there there always has been with broccoli with there's always been an interest in there's always been american input and interest in the american market i mean you can represent the u.s in many ways but again you want that market to be open to having your films. And so you're going to then make sure no matter what you present, it's not going to go too, too far that you're going to alienate these types of film goers. Well, that's another interesting thing, Lisa, in that, um, we, which I wanted to mention earlier when we were talking about why was Fleming setting a lot of his, his books in the U S why are so many of these films set there? Um, and marketing it is a, is a, big part of that i'm sure whether whether it was necessarily that in, intentional with uh, with fleming i don't know but but there was certainly this idea that um you know if you conquer an american market you know you're, you're going to sell sell more books um, um, and potentially have a more successful film mm -hmm. um so there is an element of me that sort of suggests that it that, that feels that this is uh that this was a, an intentional um, decision to, to to make these more marketable to an American audience. <clears throat> on the other hand, sometimes I, I see comments on the uh, oh bulletin boards, internet bulletin boards about man, I hope they never have another Bond movie set in America because it's just those places just aren't exotic enough, and they're just. Mm. And the movies are bad when they're when they go to America, or disappointing or whatever. Um, I, I, I have seen that uh, sentiment expressed. You agree with that? No, I, I think you can argue, you can argue it both ways. Yeah. I mean, Goldfinger and Lemonade Die are typically at the top of people's lists, and yeah, you know, A View to Kill and Diamonds are usually near the bottom. But that's that's a split, isn't it? And License yeah. to Kill floats halfway in between, so. Well, I, I think it, there has to be this element of seeing something that you can't see as a, a lay person. And I think Goldfinger does that well because obviously you've got your, you know, your key point of Fort Knox where nobody's allowed to go there and we get, we get to see into it, even, even in a kind of a, uh, you know, a fictionalized, fantastical kind of way. Uh, Harlem, again, don't get to really see into it. Um, but you know, it's giving us these insights into into the inaccessible and the exotic, even within the realms of, of an environment that would otherwise be fairly accessible. And I'd say even even for Vegas and Diamonds, it's it's behind the curtain of Vegas, and it's the mob, mm. right? Which is not easily accessible, yeah. right? 
And I was about to say with Gold, Goldfinger the film, it went into Fort Knox where on Goldfinger the novel did not. Um, and, um, you know, in the making of documentary on the home video, I, mean, I guess it was Albert R. Broccoli who said he wanted, you know, we've got to go inside. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a that's an important aspect of it is is giving the audience getting them privy privy to a world that they're not going to see otherwise, um, and look as you said, looking behind the curtain. So that begs the question then: if Bond was to come back to America, um, where would qualify then as a good location? Now you're going to ask, well, Bill, where do you have in mind? That I would need more yep. research, but something. <sighs> Maybe somewhere in Alaska, um, you know, someplace you don't see that often. Um, maybe the somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, um, but you know, somewhere you know, like not in Seattle, um, but mm. you know, something more remote. Um, but then it's it's also doesn't. I mean, those those areas are. Um, as you say, not something you see very much of, but at the same time, do they have that uh, tangible kind of mystical element to them that you wanted to have with a, with a Bond location that is sort of, um, that, that, that is exotic and, uh, you know, as, as, as incredible as the Pacific Northwest is. Um, That's why I chose to live here, man. Yes, it is, it is lovely up there. Um, but does it have... Does it have the the allure um, that is kind of a prerequisite of a of a of a good Bond story? No, no. And I would say if it hadn't been for the Vancouver film industry the last fifteen years, really, you know, doing a great job of pulling productions up there, Vancouver and BC would be a better location mm. if you're talking about the Pacific Northwest. But of all the places in the states, I think you could pull off. I mean, if you needed a location, and this, on paper it sounds like the least Bond location, but I honestly think Utah, with the geography of that state and the amazing natural beauty of it, and all the things you could pull off there, could have an angle on it. And that's not something we've seen um, in any of the Bond films that kind of location before. But it's not a big city. Yeah, and I think that's the trap. I think that's the trap a lot of fans fall into. And you thinking, oh, where could Bond go? And you say, yeah, Dallas. No, why? You know, mm. just Chicago. Well, why? <laughs> just because it's a big city. Norman, Oklahoma. Because I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Come visit. Come visit. You could. Uh, of course, you're not. you could have him in LA, just sitting in traffic. But- Eight hours. Well, that, that would also be if you filmed in Seattle, it'd be the same thing. Yeah. Um, but I think it's amazing that we're kind of at a loss for places in the U.S. I think that is very, very telling that we can't really, I mean, we're trying to sort of fit it in, but so much of the U.S. has been represented in film and so much of the U.S. I mean, there's a lot of Hollywood films that are about exploring and, and, and discovering different parts of this country. That's, that's been part of like the cultural industry, but so much has been shown and exported and is familiar in ways that say 40 years ago, it, it, you know, wasn't necessarily that way. And I think that's why most fans are inclined to want to see other types of places because we have so much ac- access to the U S that, I mean, I want to go to places that I might never travel to, and so I'm, for me, I'm like, let's go to like far reaching places 
And that's just my perspective. Right. I was about to say Hawaii at one time, but okay, you've now had mm. it. You've had it in 12 years of the original Hawaii Five-O, mm-hmm. had it years of Magnum PI, yeah. and now the Hawaii 5.0 2.0 is about to start its 10th season, which I can't believe. But, um, oh, Jesus. It's still, you know, it's like plus, plus other odds and ends yeah. series have been shot in Hawaii. I mean, it always seems like we've got some series there. Dying of the Day was shot in Hawaii. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I've it in twice. In twice <laughs> yeah, there you go. The, uh, yeah, the, the surfing scene at the start of the film. Yeah. Uh, I just that there are there are so many interesting things where you've got um, Hawaii then bleeding into North Wales, um, right? It's just, <laughs> I mean, as, I would love I would love for somebody to go to that West Coast Welsh village where they built the temple and just put you know twinned with, <laughs> I mean, twinned with North Korea slash yeah. Honolulu. Yeah. That, that guy's that guy's standing in a peat peat marsh, trying to right. sell it sell it as uh, paddy fields. Just, right. You know. <laughs> uh. In in terms of parts, I, I talked about remote areas of the states. Unfortunately, I think it would work better with a smaller scale film than with uh, than with the Bonds because if they ever made a serious Matt Helm movie, a number of the books had like you know the the big showdown happened like way out in you know remote areas and you know like so like distant places of alaska or um, you know, the west uh, one, of the, States. one of the later harry palmer movies did that as well didn't they yeah and it's interesting though because you slightly when you put bond into that kind of vastness that sort of very uh, something that's that's it's intrinsically American as well. Um, it, it he 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 sort of needs to um, maintain his intrinsic Britishness uh, right. in order to have a, that juxtaposition, and and that might that might get slightly lost in there. Um, and then you know you talk about these this this diminishing aspect of like um you know bond always has to be sort of be portrayed at least as sort of superior to to his surroundings and 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 to the into the countries he's always got to be the one that's on top and i think you you place him into a to an environment which is so um vast uh it's easy to kind of uh, be swallowed up by that um and and to lose that that Britishness um, in that, and I think that sense of otherness, um, and I think you you get that in these smaller locations where he travels to these little villages, these these things popping up in more and more frequently. Otherwise, you you know you you have to have this this juxtaposition of um, the the kind of the the Englishman abroad almost. Um, you know, uh, sounds like a good idea for a song. <laughs> but but if you if you don't have that if he, if he starts to appear kind of lost in his environment um, then then it doesn't you know it doesn't follow as well it doesn't uh, doesn't sell as well. I think that's a good note to end the philosophical debate. And here's mm-hmm. for a silly way to round it out. I'm going to give you each a virtual plane ticket to go to any U.S. Bond location for a long weekend. Um, which one would you pick and why? 
I would pick New Orleans just because I've only been there once and it was a long time ago. Um, I, and they, I went there in early 2005. That was the same year that the hurricane hit, but uh, obviously that was before the hurricane hit. Um, I'd be curious as to how it's, how it's getting on and uh, maybe have a chance to explore. I, I was there on business when I was there. So, you know, a chance to actually explore it more leisurely. Um, so I'll go with New Orleans. Hmm. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to going. Um, I might pick Von Hammerstein's uh, estate in Vermont. <laughs> um, I fancy a swim. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'm at a, I'm, I'm at a bit of a loss. I really I, I I love New York. New York is a is is an amazing Manhattan's an amazing city. Um, any opportunity to go back there, um, I, I, I would, would take it. Um, but I've been several times, so I guess it's kind of not like a, a wish fulfillment destination. Um, but yeah, maybe getting out into the, um, you know, in, into a bit more of the uh, American kind of uh, countryside would be a bit, bit interesting. So yeah, maybe maybe I'll go for that. I'm torn. Um, I would love to go back to San Francisco. I haven't been there in over. Uh, a decade, but I've never been to New York, um, like New York City. Um, I've been to New York State, based on where I live. I've been like I've been to Buffalo, New York, but that doesn't really count. Um, so I would probably say um, New York. Yeah, it's a, it's it's an amazing place, um, and that that first time you see that vista of, of, of the city skyline, it's uh, it, it definitely has an impact upon you. Um, and, um, yeah, it's a, it's just a very interesting city, uh, with, uh, a real kind of, uh, identity to it, um, that is very kind of much its own, I guess, like San Francisco has very much its yeah. own personality. Um, New York definitely has that. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, you can, you can cross the street and be in a, a, a different sort of area. You can go from Little right. Italy right into uh, Chinatown and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's just, it's like literally you're crossing a street. Um, yeah. Even, even though these little, uh, these little enclaves have their own identity, it has a, it has a broader identity as well, which is, uh, which is good. Um, I very much, uh, yeah. I very much recommend it. Yeah, I remember the first time I went to New York, which was, I'm guessing, 15 years ago now. Um, I remember on the plane and talking to the guy next to me, and he said, oh, you've never been before? It's exactly how you think it would be like. You know, steam coming through the vents on the streets and everything, yeah. all that stuff, like how it's been portrayed in film and TV. Yeah, of all the places I've been in the world, and I've been fortunate to go to a lot of places, it is the one that's, I think, most accurately represented. What's, in what's interesting about that, James, is uh, that um, I was talking to somebody about this the other day in terms of LA, and LA is exactly hey, the. We the, were in LA the, together. Yeah, that's right. um, it's it's exactly the opposite of how it's presented on film. Um, whereas New York is exactly what you think it's going to be like. LA is nothing like you think it's going to be like. Um, I mean, all of those. As, as all, we found out, right? Yes, <laughs> as we as we wandered around aimlessly for hours, trying to find something just to get a beer. Um, yeah, it's um, it's a it's a very different kind of city, um, which is, I guess, one of the reasons why I haven't sort of said, "Oh, I'd love to see James Bond in L.A." Uh, 
because I just don't think it lends itself to to, to really anything like that. And it's and its whole identity is. I think the establishing shot of LAX and Moonraker is is going to be it. Yeah, and that's not a bad thing. <laughs> and I'm and I'm and I'm happy with that. All right. Well, I think that wraps up our chat about America and Bond's relationship to its culture and locations and characters. Um, not necessarily the most positive um, <laughs> relationship I've discovered over this call. So I'd like to thank you all for being on this week. Um, Lisa, Ben and Bill, um, thanks for joining us and I hope to speak to you all again soon. Thank you very much for having me.